Whether you're a pistachio purist who loves the experience of cracking them open, or you just love the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios is the perfect healthy snack when hunger strikes. I happen to love me my pistachios. Uh, I don't want to screw around with the nuts, so I love the no-shells pistachios. Anyway, there are a bunch of flavors to choose from, like honey roasted, smoky barbecue, jalapeno, lime, and more. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts, and each ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless, and then Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data, unlimited talk and text, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone and any Mint Mobile plan and bring your own phone number along with your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. My team here, they're on Mint Mobile and they like it. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proved to have excellent coverage with no drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. To get this new customer offer and the new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash literally. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. I was weirdly nervous prepping and reading and, and getting ready to interview you. I don't know what that means. I can't I- hurt you through the Zoom screen. Just remember that. Welcome. Hello. This is Literally. You've come to the right place. It's literally with me. Um, I literally am Rob Lowe. Danny Elfman occupies such a big place in my musical fandom, you know, both in terms of uh, Oingo Boingo and all of the amazing scores that he ha- has done. He's done every single Tim Burton movie, The Simpsons, um, The Grinch, all the Fifty Shades of Grey movies, Milk all the Sam Raimi movies. I mean, my man, amazingly, amazingly talented. I've always wanted to, to pick his brain. And frankly, I've always been a little afraid of what might be in his brain. But we're going to find out right now with Danny Elfman. You've been a big part of, of my musical life, not just the, the scores, but going back to when you were a rock and roll star. When I did my first movie, The Outsiders, when we did the rumble scene, we there was a lot of dead man's party being played. Wow, I would never have guessed that. There was a lot of Oingo Boingo being played, and uh, <laughs> am I am I remembering correctly that oftentimes? Do you remember a venue deep in the valley called the Country Club? 
Oh yeah, sure. I you guys, that. you guys played yeah. the country club, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a few times. Yeah, we used to bounce kind of between like four or five clubs almost every weekend. It w- it was a great era starting up in a band because you had uh, the whiskey a go go of course and the Roxy, and then you had Madame Wong's East and Madame Wong's West. Uh, in Chinatown and in West LA. Then you had the country club in the Valley and, uh, Oh God, there's a place I'm trying to remember that was down in like Redondo beach. Yes. And between these, it kind of like created this loop. We would be going into the whiskey or the Roxy and the next weekend, the go-go's or somebody would be coming in we'd leave notes for them, you know, because there was like a half a dozen of us bands that were, it just seemed like we were playing one of those clubs every weekend. X, the Go-Go's. Yeah, and those were the clubs I went to. So it was the Go-Go's. Like, let's figure out who it was, because that was such a great era. For sure, when, when I think of it, I think of you guys and the Go-Go's. For sure, that's that era. Uh, a band called X was my personal favorite. And I used to, we'd be playing at Madame Wong's Chinatown, and they'd be playing at the Hong Kong Cafe just around the block. And on my breaks at uh, Madame Wong's, I'd run over and listen to part of their set uh, over at the Hong Kong Cafe. And uh, so we had X. There was a band called Wall of Voodoo, um, a band called Fear. um, Los Lobos, I believe, was starting to. I mean, those are iconic, 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 insane bands. It It was a very diverse group, I have to say. You know, if you looked at the Go-Go's, Oingo Boingo, X, Wall of Voodoo, and Fear, or Black Flag, um, mm-hmm. you know, you'd go, wow, do, do these bands have nothing in common? And yet, you got a lot of the same audience circulating between all of them. And I remember once uh, somebody was writing about, how oh, X and Oingo Boingo, you know, like t- completely different audiences. And I always knew they were the same kids. And finally, we did a, a show together in Tijuana. We co-headlined, and of course, it was all <laughs> the same audience and uh, the same kids, and it was a great show. And then the very beginning, the end of our period with Oingo Boingo, when we were playing uh, Universal Amphitheater, my favorite band that we used to have open for us constantly was the the Chili Peppers, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Amazing. And so um, I was really trying to like bring them into our audience but it was before they became famous and they used to get booed every night but it didn't matter i just like (laughs) i I would like go out there and personally introduce them because it was like no no you got to understand this band is amazing (laughs) and uh but you know how it is with audiences it's like if they don't know another band they just don't want to they just want to see you um and i knew that in a couple of years, they would all be going to every Chili Pepper show and, and love them. Well, and, it's funny you it's funny you say that because you know how you have a memory of something and time goes by, and the the event you're remembering is so incredible that you think maybe I didn't see that or maybe that didn't happen mm-hmm. because I have vivid memories of going to see the Rolling Stones in the Coliseum in 1980 in the early 80s. And Prince coming on and getting booed off the stage. Like, literally, yeah. they were throwing trash at him. It's the same thing. It's the, So it's the it, Chili Peppers thing. Yeah, it's the Chili Peppers thing. Now, of course, probably a, a little bit later, somewhere down the line, all those same people were buying all of Prince's records and, like, going, oh, my God, this guy's a genius. But One year later. Literally one year later. One year later. So it, it's kind of the same thing. And fortunately, the Chili Peppers were tough, so they didn't really care. You know, they'd just go out there. 
and do their thing. And we used to actually um, hire a, a there was earlier incarnations of the Chili Peppers. One of them was called Anthem and another band. So they used to play with us before they were the Chili Peppers. They were Anthem? I remember Anthem. That was the Chili Peppers? Pre-Chili Peppers, but that was Flea. And, um, oh, wow. And I think Anthony. And uh, I can't, you know, my memory of those days is <laughs> beyond poor. But when you talk about recollections and wondering if they're real— no shit. It's like, you know, how much of my memories are acquired memories? And, uh, you know, when I was 18, I spent a year traveling in West Africa and my friend who I went out out there with, I've recently been calling him trying to spend some time together because I want to compare my memories with his. I don't know how many of my early memories at 18 years old traveling through Africa how many of them are really my memories or maybe part of them are his experiences that I've acquired in my memory bank? Because evidently we do that. Well, and what I love then is when, when like what happened to me the other day, I stumbled on in YouTube on a documentary about that Prince appearance. And -hmm. indeed he was booed. They threw apples at him. It was a thing. They interviewed Mick and Mick, like you was saying, we loved him. We could not understand, and it was so painful for him that he quit the tour, Ugh. and we had to talk him into coming back um, and completing the tour. So I'm like, oh, that is a real memory. That's, that is actually That's a real memory. memory. And the, probably the difference between Prince and the Chili Peppers is that Prince was uh, sensitive mm-hmm. and yes. was hurt by the experience, and the Chili Peppers were just like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> it's like we're, we get out there and we play and you know if we get negative energy that's fine too you know they just seem to absorb it and like not care at all they were just wired differently like myself which i understand you know some people thrive on negative energy <laughs> and it kind of fuels them on so uh that i've i've read quotes where you talk about early in your um career as a composer the elite snobs in the composing world. Like, who is this rock dilettante? Well, it's understandable. I mean, I got a lot of negativity, and uh, in hindsight, it's the best thing that could have happened to me. But, you know, the fact that I was hated so much. And, and I get it. I came from nowhere. And, uh, you know, composers tend to be very clear to themselves that you have to go you have to get trained to be a composer and I get it. And look, I do the same thing when I hear about somebody from a rock band coming into orchestral film scoring, I do the same thing that they used to do to me. I go, (laughs) Oh yeah, bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get it, but it couldn't have worked out better because that energy became my fuel for a decade and got me through like my first 25 films until I got my myself, like my feet firmly on the ground, I was coasting on that negative energy because Oingo Boingo used to get that. And before Oingo Boingo, I had this theater troupe called the Mystic Knights and we used to get the worst reviews and I used to publish them in our ads. I'd pick the worst reviews and I would like put quotes from them in our own advertising. There's something about that. I do this I, I'm same. Like I remember and I'm happy to quote my worst reviews. They make me laugh. <laughs> they, and, and, in fact, the, the use of the word debacle, which I have, uh, it, I, was the first time I ever heard the word debacle, was when I, ran <laughs> to New, when I ran to Newsweek, knowing they were reviewing my movie class, and I went to the table of contents to see if it, indeed it was in this 
issue, which I heard it would be. And sure enough, it was. And it said, class, a vile debacle. And I was like, oh, great. A vile debacle. Oh, <laughs> wow. And I didn't know um, what the word debacle meant. I do now. Yeah, that's a nice one. Um, <laughs> I remember crazy stuff like uh, a dance band for kids who can't dance. That was in the LA Times. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with critics in every profession. They, you know, whether it's classical music, rock bands, film, theater, you know, they're going to have their pets and those who represent everything that's good about what they like to write about and those who can do no right. So it's always been that way. It's always going to be that way. It's, you know, it's the way it is. I turned some people on to Oingo Boingo uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was playing little girls for them. I mean, I know that you, <laughs> you get asked about that song all the time. Um, the lyrics are, well, they're obviously really, really dark. You know, it's like I was writing about Jeffrey Epstein before I knew who Jeffrey Epstein was, really is kind of what it comes down to. Right? I mean, it's what I did back then is I wrote third person, mm -hmm. meaning I dropped into characters and made fun of them from that third person perspective. And I did that a lot because it, it's interesting that a lot of people thought I was also really right wing. Because, you know, I wrote a song about middle-class socialist brats. So, no, I was the middle-class socialist brat um, mm. that I was singing about. And likewise with, you know, little girls, it was like, I'm writing from the, the viewpoint of a despicable character. People don't really understand that, you know. So, I, I've tried to, because later I was asked, oh, aren't you ashamed of writing little girls? The lyrics, I go, no, not at all. <laughs> I'd still stand by it. It's like. He's a, that character is a terrible guy. Well, That's the whole point. Yeah. It's like Randy Newman with short people. To this day, he has to, there he has go. to explain that song. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some people kind of have a hard time kind of understanding that or, or they're not really looking at the lyrics. I think has a lot to do with it. They're kind of listening to the vibe, but they're not really looking at what the lyrics are about. Cause if you read the lyrics, to little girls, it's pretty obviously, I don't like that character. <laughs> yes, I and 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 only a lad, you know. Perhaps if we're nice, if we're nice, he'll go away. You know, that's like that that sort of sentiment of letting somebody run amok and just being afraid to stand up to them. Well, is, true, and all, but at the same time, it's like it's kind of it's kind of a hardcore <laughs> attitude, one that is not very empathetic. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> that's that's right. Yes, yes. And then I didn't really realize that, that it was ska-influenced because I, you know, I didn't know musical genres. I just knew what I liked. Well, yeah, the very beginning. And then it just kind of, the ska thing got lost in there. But like our, our first stuff, um, you know, I was really influenced by the specials and Selector and Madness and those groups. Mm -hmm. And so uh, another early song of ours, which I think got recorded, called Violent Love and... Uh, a lot of that stuff had the really uh, kind of fast, upbeat ska thing going. So it was kind of like somewhere between, you know, I don't know how to describe early Boingo. I mean, look, we never knew what we were. And that was one of the frustrating things. I never knew what we were and we never could figure it out. And I finally, at a certain point in my life, stopped trying to figure it out. This can't be true. Your early musical career in, in your school, elementary school, were not satisfactory yeah i i i 
totally bombed out. I in elementary school I tried to audition for the orchestra with trombone, I think. And I was I know that my mother was told I had no musical propen- no propensity for music was the phrase that the music teacher used. And then as a teenager I tried twice. I tried taking piano lessons and violin lessons and I bombed out both times. I could not play in front of a teacher. It's like I can go home and practice scales and I remember coming in once and uh, I was doing the, my scales and my teacher asked, where are you on the page? Because I was trying to read music. And I said, and I had to admit I had no idea. I just memorized it. But really trying to play simple things in front of a music teacher, I'd be sweating. Playing an instrument in front of people is really hard. You know, when I, when I got Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 85, I had to play uh, – the Breakfast Machine, which was like the kind of the main piece I'd written for them and the main titles for the producers. And it's pretty simple music for the piano. Right. And I don't know if you remember a movie called Shine with Jeffrey Rush. Yes, of course. Um, he's, yeah. And it, this, he's playing Rachmaninoff and he has his mental breakdown. <laughs> and me playing Pee-wee's Big Adventure <laughs> was like trying to play Rachmaninoff. It was like sweat pouring down onto the keys. <laughs> and it's just, if I have somebody watching me play, forget it. I cannot do it. Now, I can play guitar or whatever in front of a bigger audience. Like I can get out, I can sing in front of a thousand people, but I can't sing in front of one. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep, one, uh, 100%. I can do a one-man show in front of an auditorium, but I am sick to my stomach to make a toast at a table of 10. There you go. Exactly. I, I had to give a, uh, get a speech. I got the, uh, a prize from the Lifetime Achievement Award from uh, a film festival, and I was backstage, and who's standing next to me but Clint Eastwood? And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Clint Eastwood. And we're talking. And he's like, yeah, Danny, I really like your music. And I'm listening. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm having the best time. It's finally, it's time for me to go on. And I have this prepared speech. And I'm like, so I just, uh, I just want to, uh, I just want, oh, crap. I've become Clint Eastwood. <laughs> it's easy <laughs> to do, right? my voice. <laughs> yeah. I, my voice just disappeared. I just couldn't do it. And uh, I, I, I didn't want to seem like I was doing a bad Clint Eastwood impersonation. But... Without my vo- losing my voice, I kind of sounded like that. And it was like, oh, this is awkward. The, you must have seen the Kubrick movie Eyes Wide Shut, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that score is mental. It's literally one note over and over and over, right? It's a composer named Ligeti. Oh, okay. And this is a very, very minimalist piece. And I remember Tim Burton talking about the same piece of music, <laughs> saying, it's driving me crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was driving him nuts. And uh, I love that. But uh, <laughs> it's just a very specific thing where you got dun, 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 one note. And, you know, it's like a thing. And obviously it was connecting to Kubrick. But yeah, if if you're not really understanding minimalism in that sense, it could be also very aggravating. Well, it's like um, John Carpenter, who also will, from time to time, um, the Halloween theme 
one of the great. Well, but that's a classic. It's a class. No, it's an amazing, amazing theme. But like super, 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 super um, simple. And then his theme to the thing. Dun 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 dun. Well, actually, dun, no, dun, no. Dun. The thing was Morricone. Was the thing Morricone? No way. If thing, yeah. Holy the thing was crap! It's one of my favorite Morricone scores. Um, and I've paid homage to that score a number of times, actually, because it's, uh, it's one of my favorites, but you're right. He did write the theme to Halloween and, um, it, it, you know, it isn't even just so much that the theme is really great, but the sound of it is really great. And, uh, in early Oingo Boingo, I remember like listening to that and getting that tick, 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 tick. He, he got this very great sound, which at that time was hard to get. We didn't have the samples and synthesizers that we have today and getting that tick, 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 ding, 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 ding. I loved that sound. And I spent hours trying to kind of figure that out and how to get that kind of sound going for some of my songs. So that you've actually just thrown out two pieces that are big motivating pieces for me, by the way, because I spent hours trying to pick apart the theme to Halloween and figure out how it was played and what was making the sounds. It was just synthesizers, but done in a very cool way. And uh, Morricone's theme to the theme, boom, 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 with this bass and these chords on this organ kind of playing this descending scale. It's so effective. And um, yeah, it's just one of those things that, nails it nailed it and uh very simple but perfect and i've also studied that score and paid homage to both of these things so well done sir well thank you i'm I'm feeling very puffed up right at the moment here (laughs) um but but you know we're (sighs) movie scores i mean it's such an amazing world because like we've just talked about two of the most spare simple scores in the world and then there are the big lush complexity which you've also done you know tremendously yeah. orally active and have you ever written something what's well, hard because you, you you start with you're watching a scene but i'm thinking uh, as a as a director like i've thought about a piece of music oh this is going to be great under that sequence and then you put it into the sequence and it's awful and you're like wait a minute <laughs> what how can that possibly be and that's just it's an unknowable, right? Until you actually just, you just don't know until you see it to picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I have a tendency, as opposed to being a minimalist, that I, as much as I love that, to be a maximalist. <laughs> Although I try to, you know, compose lean uh, when I can, when, I, when I'm allowed to. But, you know, I don't get to do that very often. But on my own, I tend to write, you know, I, I've had a couple people joke on scores that, if you were getting paid by the note, <laughs> you'd be a very rich man. And I go, yeah, I understand. You know, it's like, that's what I should put in my contract. Just a dollar a note. That's all. Is it Frank Zappa who apparently has wrote some piece of music that has so many notes on it that the page is black? Have you ever heard that one? <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard that story. But um, I've seen some pretty crazy scores to modern music. Um you know, growing up in high school, I mean, look, the only reason I got into music was that I dropped into a new high school and my parents moved between middle school and uh, high school and new friends I made were very musical. 
uh, it had never even occurred to me to get into music. But one of my earliest friends already was like an avant-garde composer by the time, you know, he was in like the 11th grade, wow. 10th, 11th grade. And he was writing these scores with big graphic symbols and black lines. And, and he was doing that way back uh, in the gazillion years ago era of when I started out at uni high. Uni. I'm Samo high. So I, I know you guys. Uh, you were Samo, huh? Okay. I know you uni guys. Summer is almost here. Are you ready to throw open your windows or throw them away? If they're drafty, foggy, or impossible to clean, talk to your friends at Window World. Window World specializes in home transformation with beautiful, energy-efficient windows entry doors, and siding, featuring Energy Star certification and the good housekeeping seal. Call 1-800-WINDOW-WORLD, schedule your free consultation, and tell them you heard about it here on Literally with Rob Lowe. Window World, America's exterior remodeler. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day? Or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky. Same day. Or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment. There's only one answer. California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. I, look, I love California. Um, and I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. Transform your bathroom cleaning with Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner. You just spray today and rinse tomorrow for a no-scrub clean. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, this is your once-a-week solution to keeping your tub and shower surfaces sparkling clean. Available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. Join thousands who switch to an easier clean. Get your wet and forget weekly shower cleaner today and make your bathroom sparkle with zero scrubbing. Did you read music early on? No. You, did you ever learn? I, I've tried. Um, I write. And so when I started writing, which was for uh, the Mystic Knights, mm -hmm. uh, the Oingo Boingo, before Oingo Boingo, I started writing down transcriptions of big band pieces because we did a lot of early 30s music. I was obsessed with Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway. And I did teach myself to listen and write down to transcribe the music. So then when it came down to doing Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I was writing the music down, but I can't read faster than I write because I learned to write before I learned to read. And people go, musicians go, that's not possible. I go, of course it's possible. Um, mm. Imagine you're illiterate and you're a storyteller and you finally get to the point where I got to write this story down. It's just too long to just remember the whole thing. And you pick up a typewriter and you teach yourself the alphabet and you slowly type your story. Right. Well, you can get to the point where, oh, after a year or two or three of this, I can type a, a novel if I take my time because you're typing one letter at a time, tap, tap, 
tap, tap, tap, tap, tap, tap. But that person may not be able to read faster than they write. So they may read this fast. And that's me. Mm. Um, I never really learn to read faster than I can write. And writing is rather slow, but I've tried a hundred times. And I mean, I've always felt that I've got some missing circuitry and it's applied to learning languages of which I've never been able to retain any mm. other languages. As hard as I've tried, um, nothing stays. And with music, learning music and, uh, you know, I, tried learning the theory and everything. And it's like, uh, you know, I have it for a second and then a month later it's all gone. I, I think, you know, it's just me, my circuitry. I, it's almost like the way I see it, there's a part of my brain that just isn't there that should be able to do things that other people find very easy. Yep. And learning languages, learning to read music. Um, you know, I have a friend who speaks five languages and it's like, I'm so amazed by that. Yeah. The fuck? Yeah. And it's like, I could never even learn Spanish. <laughs> and I live in Los Angeles and I've tried. How are you with math? I was okay. I wasn't great, but I wasn't terrible. So huh. math, um, I think I was kind of medium. You know, they always say musicians are so good at math. Yeah. Well, not, not in my case. But I wasn't terrible at math. But, you know, I think I was what you'd call like a B student. I made the mistake of having my IQ tested. Um, terrible. Please, I, I beg of you. No. Don't ever. It was the worst thing I ever did. No, like, I'm not even curious. I, I have no doubt I would score low. I was so low on the chart <laughs> that I was like, I don't even know what the, the correct word would be. And, but yeah. like, I was like a, almost like a non-functioning human being. And then, on, and then totally on the other it. side of it, on the communicating, reading, reading comprehension, I was equally, but off the charts on that one. Mm -hmm. So it was, I, I was, I'm literally like half a person. Yeah. I, I'm totally with you there. I get it. It's like, I could remember inner voicings of scores that I wrote 10 years ago on a big, long, a dense score. But on the other hand, I can't do real basic, simple stuff. <laughs> and, and one thing also, I have no memory for words, uh, trying to remember lines. I could never be an actor. I knew that really early on. It's like, it's never going to fucking happen. Just because of like, memory? Just because literally. Oh yeah. Yeah. And the more I try, the worse it gets. Look, I, I had this terrible experience once. I'll tell you like one of the worst experiences in my life sam raimi the director oh yeah um he's shooting a movie called the gift he wants me to play this part of a cajun fiddler in a swamp and he says danny can you like grab a violin and run down to wherever we're working in uh, in georgia and uh and do this scene and i go uh all right sam sure whatever i'll do that and i i was actually in new york at the time i didn't have my violin any violence. So I just grabbed the cheap one from a store. I learned a little piece in like Cajun style where you're holding it down low. And I flew out and joined him and I get to the set and he goes, okay, we shoot tomorrow. Now I'm going to give you a dialogue coach to work with you. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean dialogue? He goes, oh, didn't I tell you, you have some lines. I go, oh no, Sam, don't do this to me. <laughs> and I have about, 
you know, like, a, I don't know, like five or six lines, you know, it's not that much. And I have to do them in dialect. Uh. And I got this dialect coach and the dialect makes no sense to me because it's not like a Southern dialect. Like I'm like one is used to hearing if one is doing a Southern dialect. It's, it's very weird. And I stayed up late at night and trying to learn this dialect and learn these lines. And I finally, they put this big beard on me and they put me in this water <laughs> and I got my fiddle and, um, I'm trying to do these lines and all the actors are sitting around kind of looking at me <laughs> and, oh my God, it, it was the worst. And the more I did the lines, the more I started to blow them. And the more I started to blow them, the worse I got. And eventually I could just see the actors, they're shaking their heads like, couldn't they just get a fucking actor? Like oh, extra no. Come in here and do this oh, no. thing. You know, this we, this thing should be taking 10 minutes. And we've been here for 45 minutes and we're all waiting to get back on the set. And it more than any time I could ever remember was my beam me up Scotty moment. Mm-hmm. Because I was just, I'm sitting there in the sun with all this makeup, with this beard and a, trying to play live fiddle and then do this lines and I'm just getting worse and worse and worse. And, oh, it was such a clear indicator to me that I was not meant to be doing this shit. It's like, uh, I don't know how you get in front of a camera and just stay calm and do lines, but it's one of the great mysteries of life for me because it's like if a camera's rolling, if it's on, if that moment, it's like, I can't even do promos, you know, like coming up live concert, uh, you know, do like four line promos. I start blowing those. I'm completely the opposite. Like I, I'm, I'm a big golfer and if I'm fucking up my golf game or there's money on the line, I will actually secretly, they don't know why I'm doing it, but I'll ask somebody to videotape my swing, just having a camera on me yeah. in any capacity makes oh. me, uh, makes me elevate. And this was Kate Blanchett, by the way. Oh my God. And so Kate Blanchett is, is across from me, prompting me with my lines and I'm going, I'm just fucking dissolving into a puddle of goo in front of Kate Blanchett and all the other actors who are off to my side. Oh, I, I'll never forgive Sam. And in fact, I'm going to see him tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to fucking hit him. Yeah, I hit him and hit him and tell him I said hello. I, I, I haven't seen him in years, but I, you did one of my, probably my favorite Sam Raimi movie, which is A Simple Plan. Oh, yeah. Simple Plan. That was so much fun. I really had a blast on that. And that's where I met my wife. That's where you met Bridget. I met her on that set. Of I course. I never, I never put it together, but of course. Well, I mean, it's funny because we didn't really talk, but we just met. So I came onto the set and they're in between lines and uh, Bill Paxton and Bridget are on this kind of phony porch, you know, on a, on a stage. And um, Sam introduces me and they're both kind of like waving, but Bill Paxton, he's so like, he kind of gets in front of Bridget and he says, hey, Danny. And he's like, we're having this conversation. He's like, God Bridget's damn, I love Doingo Boingo. God, you should have seen <laughs> yeah. the days. I used to go to the country club. Like, God, you'd be there with the red hair. God, it was Bill amazing. Bill was so gregarious, you know, yeah. you know. Yeah. Bill oh, was yeah. like a really gregarious, friendly guy. Yeah. And uh, God bless him. And yeah. uh, 
And Bridget's very shy. So, but, you know, we said hello. And it wasn't until five years later at a party where she's like sitting there knowing nobody. And I didn't really know anybody. And she goes, oh, I know him. I saw him on that set. And she came up and says, hi, remember me? It's Bridget. And we started talking. Oh, do you know that I'm an honorary, an honorary Fonda? Are you aware of this? I'm totally not aware of this. Yes. Um, and I take it, take my responsibility totally seriously. Uh, uh, Bridget's father, Peter, um, deigned me an honorary Fonda because he said, you, you remind me of my dad. And so I, I, when I hear that, I'm taking it and running with it and I'm putting it on all of my business cards. Sweet. Honorary Fonda. Nice. Yeah, it I goes, like that. It goes along with also being an honorary Baldwin, which I also am, but that's not as cool. Well, yeah, I don't want to, look, I don't want to cast aspersions uh, in the Baldwin both family. They're pretty damn cool. You're an honorary Baldwin and an honorary Fonda. And you can kind of see it when you think about it. I mean, it's not like well, totally far-fetched. How many people can say that? I don't think so many. Exactly. Hey, listeners. Ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance TVs. They're certainly out here, there. But when I, when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's, I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 
seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. Um, I want to know the scoring session where somebody called you Mozart and you fired them. <laughs> oh my God, that was a, a rough moment. Okay, it's my fifth film because I remember Tim's films was my first, fifth, tenth, and fifteenth. Um, and Tim would go, how come you're doing four films in between each of mine? And I'd say, I have to. I'm trying to learn how to score. <laughs> and uh, But I was on my second Tim Burton film, Beetlejuice. And um, we're looking for a conductor because I definitely don't conduct. Still don't conduct. Will never conduct because that's that's its own talent. And um, which I want you to, by the way, which I want you, I want you to explain to me because to the uninitiated like me, it looks like a guy waving a stick. Exactly. And to some composers because of their ego, they want to be that guy waving the stick because you're kind of the leader, the director, but it is a skill. And, uh, on a film session, the musicians aren't following the stick so much as, getting quick information to guide them and lead them on. So the conductor, the best way I can explain it is, for example, I used this guy named Pete Anthony for about 50 scores here in Los Angeles. And he can look at 25 staves of music simultaneously and hear them all in his head at the same moment. And what makes a good conductor is you finish a passage, uh, Two musicians raise their hand and they go, in bar 147, I hear a, a, an E flat coming from the second violins, but I have an E natural on my clarinet. Is that correct? And it's like, for me, I'm on the other side of the glass and I'm following and I go, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait where am I? Um, hang, hang, so even, you know, I'm trying to catch up with the, the moment and he just looks in three seconds. He goes, uh, yes, can you please change that to an E natural? The E flat is coming from the second violins and that's correct. So it's wow. looking for typos, looking for mistakes because when you have uh, 90 minutes of music and it's going out to 85 musicians, you have a lot of music being copied, there's going to be 100 mistakes. And um, the conductor is absolutely essential to like really sift through it live on the spot and get quick, 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 quick answers. Move it along, move it along, move it along. That's what a conductor does in film music. And there are some composers that are also very good conductors. John Williams is the most famous. He's an excellent conductor. Aside from film music, he can conduct music. And um, I think there are composers, I believe Alan Silvestri and uh, Alexandre Desplat, you know, they, they like conducting and they're good conductors. But according to the musicians, when I talk with them, there are also a number of composers out there that should not be conducting. Amazing. And it really impedes their progress because they're not making things go quickly. They're doing it because they love it. Now, for me, I want to be on the other side of the glass. I do not want to be in front of the orchestra. I want to hear the music 
playing through speakers because that's how film music is played. It's not for a live concert. It's for a film. You're going to listen through speakers. And I'm making judgment calls about balances, not based how it sounds in the room, but how it sounds through the sound system. And that's essential for me because I'm making a hundred adjustments while we're playing and notes based on how it sounds in the control room through the speakers. If you walk into the live room, everything sounds great. (laughs) It's like a magical thing. You walk in the room and you've got the acoustics and everything's very live. And it's like, wow, this sounds so great. You get on the other side of the glass through the speakers. It's much more clinical. It's, uh, it's drier. You hear everything closer to you um, because you're hearing what all the microphones are picking up in the back of the room. You're hearing stuff that you don't hear so well in the room because it's get blending with everything. And so, wow, talk about making a short story long. No, that was fascinating. You kidding me? <laughs> I'm was so great. sorry. It's like, yeah, no, this, this is like, you remind me of what tangent. No, no, this is why I, I do podcasts. Okay. So it, the, here, here's what it all comes down to. It's my fifth score and we're going, oh, we need a conductor. Danny, is there anybody you'd like? I go, no, I don't really have any conductors at that point that I work with. And they said, oh, let's give him Lionel, Lionel Newman. Famous, right? I mean, Brothers. Lionel Newman. Famous. Famous. Lionel Newman. And um, the whole family of Newman's is insanely musical. Alfred Newman wrote uh, about 100 film scores, amazing scores. Lionel Newman was a conductor and musical director, and he also had his name on a gazillion scores as musical director and or conductor. And then, of course, you've got Thomas Newman and uh, David Newman, you know, both related to the same family, and Randy Newman, uh, who I think is a little more distantly, I don't know quite how it works out, but they're all related to the same Newman lineage incredible musical family. And so I go, wow, that would be insane, Lionel Newman. So at this point, I'm the new kid on the block. I'm this punk. (laughs) And Lionel Newman is like this hero, this god. He comes in there for the first day to do Beetlejuice. And it's just a terrible mismatch. He does not understand this score. And so he's like, he's used to being in charge and running it. So I'm on the other side of the glass. I'm in the control room. He's in front of the orchestra. And the first thing we're doing is trying to record the main titles. And the main titles of Beetlejuice is very, very rigid and quick. It's very difficult, surprisingly so. Sounds simple, but when you're a tuba player and brass player, playing really hard. And um, he was swinging it. So the way he was doing it was he was like doing what he thought was musical. And I kept going in there going, no, 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 no. And we're starting to get more and more problematic because we'd finish a rehearsal and he'd start talking to the orchestra himself without getting my input. And what he's saying is the opposite of what I need the music to do. So then I have to go out there and say, excuse me, Mr. Newman, uh, but no, actually, it's got to be like this. And um, and he's getting really grumpy with me. And <laughs> it's going on and on in this very, it's going downhill quick because oh. oh. he doesn't get the music. And he's trying to make it musical, what he considers musical. And I'm just trying to get it the way it's supposed to be, which is really, really straight 
up and down. And um, so there's a certain point where Steve Bartek, my orchestrator and myself, we're writing notes and to musicians because we can't get a word in edgewise. And at every time we're done with the take, we'd both run in there and he'd hand out a note to like some musicians and I'd hand out notes to others. And I'm handing a note to the pianist saying something about a certain bar, how he's supposed to play it. And Lionel goes, excuse me, Beethoven, we're trying to work in here. Oh boy. And once he said that, the mood in the room dropped. It's like people are looking at their feet. It's like everybody was just embarrassed and feeling horrible. And I skulk back into the room and we got to the lunch break and I went to uh, Gary Lamell, who was the head of music at Warner Brothers at the time. And I go, and he goes, this isn't working out, is it? I go, Gary, it's really not working out. In fact, it's the first session I've ever done where we got no music recorded at the end of a whole session. Wow. And so Gary got on the phone. We called another guy. His name is Bill Ross, a conductor and, uh, and a composer. And he was free the next day. He just came in cold, actually I think he even came in after lunch. It's possible that he just drove down there and he just did a great job just to professional, you know, never seen the music before. It didn't matter. You know, he just talked to me, understood, okay, this is how you want it. This is how we'll do it. We got the score recorded and and that's it. And it's historic. Oh my God. I felt so terrible to be the one guy ever to, to fire Lionel Newman. And, and I really did, I respected him and, you know, I, I was in awe really, but on the other hand, I had a job to do. I had to record the score for Tim and for Warner brothers, and it just wasn't going to get recorded with Lionel. It was just a mismatch. He came from the old school of music being a right way and a wrong way. And I came from the school of, no, there is no right way or a wrong way. There's just the way it's supposed to fucking be. And that, is what it is. And that comes from the composer that doesn't come from the conductor. And he just didn't understand it. Didn't think of it that way because, uh, the artistic decisions of how music is played comes from the composer. Conductors interpret music on a symphony orchestra, you know, when they're doing actual Beethoven or Mozart, they can interpret it. But when you're on a film score stage, the conductor is not supposed to interpret the music. It's just not what you do. So we were just a clash of eras and a clash of styles and um, unfortunate. That's such an amazing story. Um, I did not. How did I not know that you wrote the Simpsons theme? That's, I mean, you've had a lot of famous themes, but I think it's going to be hard to top that. <laughs> well, I mean, look, that was my lucky. Everybody... It's got, uh, you know, anybody who's gotten successful uh, in arts has some lucky break somewhere out there. And, you know, you get a few lucky breaks and you take a shit ton of hard knocks. Right. I mean, that's kind of how it works. For every 99 hard knocks, you hopefully get a lucky break that helps compensate it. Yep. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I do. It's just like, sure it's just like coming up is hard and establishing yourself is hard. And The Simpson was just, I had two great lucky breaks in my career. One of them was meeting Tim Burton and Paul Rubens and getting Pee-wee's Big Adventure out of the blue, which I didn't expect. And the other was uh, The Simpsons. And, um, okay, so there's a funny story here too because 
this goes back to the Oingo Boingo days. We're playing at the country club. Oh, talk about coming full circle. Yes, I like the way you do it. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing a show at the country club. And during the encores, evidently, a critic, a music critic came stumbling in there, a little bit intoxicated, and heard the last couple of songs of the encore and then wrote a review for the LA Reader the next day. And uh, that film, that music critic was none other than Matt Groening. Wow. the creator of The Simpsons, who used to write a column for the reader. And I got really offended. I was used to getting bad reviews, but I wrote this letter saying, hey, if you're going to fucking trash me, at least sit through the show. You know, don't just come to like the last couple of encores because he made a comment like huffing and puffing his way through some song. And I go, you're right. Um, I just finished 30 songs without <laughs> breaks. You know, we don't do many solos. I'm going the whole time. And yeah, I was I was out of breath by the end of the, all that. And uh, and fuck you. And yeah, exactly. basically they printed it. They printed this letter. So Amazing. I was like, oh, right on. So now it's years later. And... There is uh, a comic strip. Was it called Life in Hell? Yes. It might have been. Yep. And it was Matt Groening. Yep. And reluctantly, I'm like, this thing is really funny. It's really good. And I hate the fact that it's this guy that I hate. You know, this asshole is actually talented. And so some years go by and I get a call saying, we have this TV show. It's called The Simpsons. And um, the creator, Matt, is interested in meeting you. I go, Really? Matt Groening, the same guy. <laughs> All right, this will be interesting. So I go down there and we have this great meeting and Matt is wonderful. And he shows me a pencil sketch uh, animation of the Simpsons opening. And I look at it and I hear the music in my head right on the fucking spot. It was just one of those moments. And I said, look, Matt, if you want something retro and kind of like 60s, because that's the feel I'm getting getting from this intro it reminds me actually the opening of the flintstones yes with the yep. car you know 100 um and uh i said i hear this as like a kind of crazed version of a hanna-barbera theme that never was you know and he says yeah go with that and i i actually wrote the whole thing in my head in the car on the way home but the point is is as i'm leaving that meeting i'm saying you know goodbye to everybody. And Matt takes me aside. He goes, Hey Danny, you may not remember, but echo. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. And he goes, I'm really sorry about that. But you know, what, what can I say? You took me to task and I go, look, it's all good, man. And, uh, um, and it led to the lucky break of my career, which was doing this one theme one time. And when I recorded it, it's like, Oh, I need, I'm opening with these three notes. The Simpsons. So I said, I'll do that. I'll hire two other people. And I joined SAG in order to sing those three notes. Best decision of my life. Best decision of your <laughs> life, my friend. Yes, because I my health insurance for me and my family still comes from The Simpsons. <laughs> and at this rate, you could live to be a thousand years old and it would still be coming. It was just, I never expected anybody to see it. It was one of those things. Really? Um, the Simpsons was so weird for its time and it had no laugh track. And I said, this will run three episodes and be gone forever. And I don't care. I really liked Matt. 
Um, I like the little piece of music I came up with. I said, it'll be fun to do. I'm doing this for me because no one's ever going to hear this. Okay. Wrong. Wrong. Jesus. And the other was Batman. When Tim was finishing the first cut of Batman, I go, I love this, but no one's going to get it. No one's going to understand this. It's so weird. And, uh, wow. the footage I was looking at was so dark. I mean, it ended up getting brightened up by the end, but on video, I remember I'm scoring the scene uh, up the cathedral, it's called, in this big clock tower. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't even see what was happening on the screen. <laughs> I mean, it's like I'm hearing crunch, bang, I'm going, okay, I'm guessing that's a punch and a punch. I don't see anything. It's like, so I'm almost scoring to the sound more than the picture because it was just so dark. Was it an un untimed version you were seeing? I'm so Yeah, curious. it was untimed. Yeah. You know, this is all yeah, just yeah. like rough stuff. Right. Uh, off the editing machine. Yeah. And so it just hadn't been timed and Got corrected it. yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but the movie just seemed so whacked and weird <laughs> to me compared to, you know, the only other superhero movie really at that time was Superman. And uh, it, it seemed so the antithesis of Superman. So, so whacked compared to it. I just figured, okay, this will be like a little weird cult movie. And um, I was wrong there. And I've been wrong a few times. You just don't know. I remember um, I'd worked with Winona Ryder on, on her. She'd done a little movie. Uh, she was in a, a movie called Lucas. And then we did a movie together where she was the star called uh, Square Dance. And I remember her saying she was going off to do this movie Beetlejuice. And I remember, I mean, I don't think I'd ever heard the word. I now know it's, of course, it's a moon or a star or something. Star, Beetlejuice, the star. Um but I remember going, Beetlejuice, that sounds like the worst title ever. That movie will never go anywhere. And of course, it's, you know, one of the great. But, great you know, classes. even when the movie was coming out, it was considered to be gone before, you know, DOA, dead on arrival. Because uh, the studio even didn't understand, what is this Beetlejuice? And there was a point where it was going to be renamed House Ghost. Oh, no. Yeah. House and Ghost. I think it got one of the worst preview scores ever. And I just remember uh, when it opened, my daughter was in kindergarten or first grade. She was like, all the kids are talking about this movie called Beetlejuice. I go, yes, that's, that's all I need to know. It's like, that's gonna, it's gonna do well. And, um, that was another movie that nobody expected to do anything. I mean, I worked on some of the lowest scoring movies ever. <laughs> uh, amongst them, I believe Dark Man for Sam Raimi might've been the lowest scoring movie in Universal's history. I saw Dark Man. I remember and Dark Man. A lot of people saw Dark Man and another one was Edward Scissorhands. Wow. It's like the preview audience did not understand that. Why movie. does he have scissors as hands? They asked. Why does he have scissors in hands? How come they don't get married? You know, I remember the focus group afterwards and uh, it was like women were asking I'd like it more if they got married, if Kim and Edward got married at the end. Oh, boy. And and Tim is sitting in the back of the room, and he's like, I'm going to throw up. And I go, this <laughs> is like really yeah. miserable. Um, tell, me, tell me about the new album. Big mess. Of course, with my luck, in 2020, I took no film work. And because I had a lot of concerts booked. No, oh, sure. Yeah. That's a good year. And to do that. Um, I decided I'd give the whole year over to concert work. Cause for one thing I had shows for nightmare before Christmas live. Um, I had shows for this uh, big orchestral thing we do called Elfman Burton, where we do 15, all these suites of Tim Burton music live with orchestra. 
uh, all over the world. I had my violin concerto premiering in London and several other cities. Um, and I had a cello concerto that I was commissioned to write and a piece for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain that was going to premiere at the proms in August. So I had just had so many pieces of music playing all over the place that I said, I'm going to, for the first year ever, do no film. And of course, mm. we all know what happens. Yep. I was pretty depressed. And uh, I went up to my out-of-town house with my family and holed up there. And I started working on this uh, commission for National Youth Orchestra for August. But, you know, there was that point in March where summer concerts had not yet canceled, but we all knew they would. Right. You know, it was obvious there was going to be no proms in London, no summer concerts in London. It was all going to go down. And it took the wind out of my sails. And I had this new song that I was going to premiere at Coachella called Sorry, which I'd actually written the year before as a concept piece for orchestra and, and rock band. And uh, I was doing it for a festival in uh, Tasmania called Dark Mofo that I love. <laughs> and uh, I pitched it as a thing called chamber punk at that point. I said, I like it's that. like put a rock band with a chamber orchestra and some female voices. I wasn't singing on it. It was just an instrumental, but it never came together. But I, w I turned it into a song 2019 for Coachella and I couldn't believe how much venom I had in me when I opened my mouth and started to sing. I mean, and then when things went under in the, you know, after March, I was just angry and frustrated. And I said, you know, I'll do a couple more songs just to go with, uh, I'm so sorry, or now it's just called sorry. And, um, it just opened a Pandora's box. I mean, I was just so angry and pissed off and frustrated and, and I realized that this was really cathartic for me because before I knew it, I had 18 songs. Wow. And I remember it was like August and I called my manager and I said, Laura, I said, you know, I don't have a deadline. Nobody's waiting for this. It's like, I'll keep fucking writing forever. I mean, <laughs> we're going to end up with 118 songs unless we like, we got to call it. Okay. We're going to start marketing. We'll start playing this for some record companies. Let's stop at 18. That's, that's enough. That's fine. Cause I'll never stop because I'll never get it right. You know, I'll always be like one more song. I'll get it right. One more song. I'll get it. I mean, that's how I'm wired. Right. I no. would still be writing the score to Pee Wee's Big Adventure if I didn't have a deadline trying to get it right. Our world is deadline oriented, right? Yes, yes for sure. It's like we have to deliver work and such and such a, time frame and for the first time for a gazillion years i have no deadline nobody's waiting for me i'm just writing this for myself some of the stuff was so personal i wasn't even sure i wanted to release it mm. and uh you know i'm used to writing like i was telling you earlier third person yeah and while i was writing for big mess i realized that that is also a protection you know when you're writing third person you're protecting your, your own feelings aren't necessarily being exposed. You're not exposing yourself. You're taking a character's point of view. You're writing a short story based on the point of view of a character. Um, and here there's no character to protect me. I'm just writing as myself, except for, you know, there's two or three songs that I probably fall into third person. Um, and so, 
when I came out of it, it was kind of like, I don't know what this is. All I know is it's a big fucking mess <laughs> because it was a constant competition between these two writers that live inside of me that don't like each other. And one of them is heavy and the other one is absurd, likes ridiculous. And they were just going one and then the other and one. And by the time I had six songs, I already knew, okay, this is going to be an A side and a B side thing because mm. these aren't lining up. And by the time I had 12 songs, I got, I got six and six now. This is weird. By the time I had 18 songs, it's like, all right, I got two albums and they're both completely different from each other. Um, and I said, fuck it. I'm just going to put it out there. All of it. It's a big mess. And that's what I am. I love that. I, I'm the same though. I so related when you said that there's two people in you. It's like, I have the absurdist in the dark, you know? And, and, mm -hmm. and I try to find, I really, I try to find the, an outlet in my work for, for, for both ends of it. You know, it's, it's cause if I just do one, I get bored. Well, exactly. And that was for me, the beauty of going to film music from being in a band, it was really hard to define what we were. And I was frustrated, but getting into film music, I could just let both sides go because you're going from one extreme to the other. You're going from big and dark to ridiculous and light to very romantic to completely absurd. And you're able to just like go boom, 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 you know? And I, I was so relieved by being able to like go to these extremes, um, which I couldn't really do in a band very easily. Uh, but then when I came here years later and started writing, those two sides of me had like definitely established themselves <laughs> and had not, neither one had receded an inch. So it's just what you're saying. You know, I get bored if I'm just doing one thing or the other. Well, keep both of those parts of you alive there. We, we, we <laughs> love it. We love the music. We love the scores. Thank you. Um, you're a champ for coming on the show. This has been so, so excited. I was so excited and this is great. Oh, I'm such a music nerd. So I, I love to nerd out about music. It's, it's the best. Oh, well, good. Cause I'm a nerd also. And, uh, and you could see, I could ramble on endlessly on ridiculous and, uh, you know, tangents. So, uh, forgive me my rambling. Well, well, Beethoven, uh, it's been great talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. I had so much fun. Oh my God. I could, I, like I said, I could nerd out and I learned what a conductor did. And so did you come on, admit it. You, you thought like I did. It's probably cause we grew up watching that Bugs Bunny cartoon where Bugs Bunny holds the stick up until the guy keeps singing. And then the Hollywood bowl, Hollywood bowl, see the Hollywood bowl falls down. Right. But now there's a lot more to it. I realized that talking to Danny Elfman. Um, let's check out the big red phone in the lowdown booth. Hello, you've reached literally in our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323 570 4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hi, Rob. This is Bill from Ohio, and I'm a fan of your movie Youngblood. And I was watching it the other day, and I was just wondering if maybe you might have some interesting hockey stories from that movie. There's some pretty intense action in there, and you look to really be moving around the rink really well. So 
Didn't know if you were a natural hockey player or this is something you'd picked up, but usually when actors are called on to do these very physical parts, there's usually an interesting story or two to go with these. So I was wondering if maybe you had something to share from there and maybe one of your uh, future budding stars that were in that movie, Keanu or Patrick, or maybe even Cynthia. So if you have anything from there that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear about it. And by the way, uh, I think I partied with your producer, your new one, Rob Schulte in Las Vegas. So uh, if you ever get the chance to do that, I recommend it because it's a lot of fun. Thanks. Have a good day. Rob Schulte. You're famous. My new producer, Rob Schulte, you're making your mark wherever you go. Um, thanks for calling in. Youngblood is, yeah, first of all, I didn't know how to skate. I knew how to, like, fake ice skate with, like, the toe pick. I, did, I didn't know what a toe pick was then. You know, with your girlfriend and hold hands around the rink. That's, that was my skill level. I don't think I'd ever had a pair of hockey skates on in my life. So I went from that to what you see on screen, which, which is a big, a big improvement. And I trained every day for, I think, four to six weeks, every single day. That's all I did. I woke up in the morning. I had a, an actual proper skating lesson. Then I would go to the gym. It was the first time I ever had a, a trainer in my life and the first time I ever properly had a, a, a training regimen, which is stuck. It's, that's the gift of young blood for me. But I remember I hated it at first. It hurt so much. And now I, can't, and now I do it. It's just a part of my life. Um, then um, I would do a power skating um, uh, lesson, which is like, you know, the technical aspects of your core and how you, you know, and then I would play a game, a hockey game, even though I couldn't really play, I would play. And I, I remember I would, I would skate over the boards and vomit. I was so fried. And so did Swayze. Swayze though, who was great at everything. This was the only thing that he wasn't so great at. He was still better than me because he was just a gifted athlete. But, um, it was fun to see Swayze struggle because he was an expert at everything he did. And I also remember that um, it was the summer. And so the rink would obviously be cold. And then you'd go outside and it'd be 100. And there's nothing like the kind of cold, summer cold flu you can, that you can get from doing that day after day after day. Brutal. And then the other thing I remember was lacing up your skates every single day, multiple times. The, I still, I think, have the calluses and the cuts on my, the outsides of my little fingers. Got to the point where I couldn't even, they're bleeding. I mean, little weird stuff like that that you don't think about. And so in the movie, all of this, I got to be really good at skating, actually. Um, and stick handling takes a little bit more practice. So if there's ever a shot with, with me and a puck, it's not me. But any skating that does not involve a puck is me. And this is pretty good stuff. I'm, uh, you know, I'm just saying. So anyway, hope that was illuminative and thanks for calling in. Uh, more good stuff to come next week on Literally. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our talent bookers are Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn. And music is by Devin Tory Bryant. 
Make sure to leave us a rating and review, and we'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.